1: Welcome back everyone to Conversations Live. I'm your host Cyrus Webb. Glad you all could join us once again. But for our radio audience tuning in here in Mississippi at WYAD 94.1 FM and WYADonline.com, we're glad that you all could be with us. Also it's tuning in through our online affiliates around the world, we're glad that you all could join us as well. A lot of times as we're kind of looking at conflicts and problems in the world and the deep division that we see, especially in our own country, a lot of times we try to focus on what we see. Our next guest has written a book that really talks about, I think, the foundation of that division where it starts, and also what can be done about it. We're excited to welcome author and podcast host Bradley Onishi to our program. His new book is called Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. We're going to talk to Bradley not only about the writing and research for this book, but also what it was like for him to be able to compile the information, what he hopes you as a reader take away from it, and then, of course, looking forward, what keeps him optimistic.
0: Bradley, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Uh, The pleasure is definitely all mine. I I was saying to you before we went live here, uh, when my friend Peter Galey, under Public Relations, was telling me about the book, I I said yes because I always trust his judgment when it comes to recommendations, and I was excited about reading it. But after I got into the book, Bradley... (laughs) I have to say, there were a lot of surprises for me, um, things I was not expecting. I mean, the cover is definitely thought-provoking. We're going to get into that. But I want to talk to you about that part first. What has it been like for you to see the initial response to preparing for war?
0: Well, it it, in many ways has been uh, affirming. I I wanted to write a book that would help folks uh, get a longer view of where we are, especially with the two-year anniversary of January 6th. Uh, upon us, and so a lot of people have been commenting to me that, uh, "Hey, this is this is actually helping me understand uh, what happened two years ago in ways that I never did before." I think for other people, it it also has helped them process their own spiritual journeys because uh, so much of my my own journey is in the book, and they've they've been able to uh, do a lot of personal reflection, uh, you know, just based on. Uh, everything I lay out in the text so both of those reactions are ones I I hope for and and I've been getting some of that already
1: Yeah, and and Bradley I want to say and I want people really to take the time to read the book because it is written in a way that is definitely I think not only thought-provoking, but it lays it out in a way that is so reasonable and really does make you think. One of the things that comes up in the book, and of course, you know, we, we always want to find uh, the culprit when it comes to things happening. And a lot of times you know, people, especially when we're talking about January uh, 6, uh, 2021, they want to point the finger at, at the former president. And not that there's not culpability there, but one thing you outlined in the book that I think is so important is that there was a pathway that led there. Right. So talk to us about that, because one thing you do really well in the book is kind of take us through that pathway. Why was that important for you to do, especially in the context of the conversations around January
0: 6th? Yeah, I I think it was really important to kind of give folks an idea that uh, this is not something that was invented in 2018, uh, 2020, even 2016. It was was really a a story that... uh, in many ways, goes back to the 1960s. And in the 1960s, we have two things happening at once. Uh, we have a lot of changes in the country that, for many of us, signal progress. The civil rights movement, uh, changes to voting rights, uh, changes to immigration. Uh, we have feminist movements where women are entering the workforce uh, in mass. And uh, 1967, there's a Loving case. I- I'm a mixed-race person, Well, the Loving case Protected interracial marriage, you know, f- federally. Um, Stonewall happened, and there's a lot of uh, movement for uh, rights for for uh, LGBT uh, Americans and so on. That is happening, and I think many people listening won't, will will kind of realize the '60s were a time of, of making great progress when it came to representation and rights for many marginalized groups in the United States. But what was also happening was a counter revolution, uh, a revolution for by those who felt as if The extension of representation and rights to those marginalized groups signaled to them a losing of their rights or their privilege. And so to give you one example, in 1964, Barry Goldwater is the Republican candidate for president. Uh, He's a surprise candidate. He's a cowboy. He's brusque. He's overly masculine. Uh, He likes to talk big and tough on the campaign trail, if any of this sounds kind of uh, familiar. And he says in his acceptance speech that extremism is a virtue and moderation is not. And if you want to be in the Republican Party, you need to be an extremist because that's the only way to get your country back. Well, that never stopped. Uh, that kind of ethos prevailed. And even though Barry Goldwater, those those history buffs out there will know he lost in a landslide, the, the foot soldiers of his campaign never forgot that those lessons and they never – Gave up on that uh, idea of taking their country back, and so they created the Heritage Foundation and the Council for National Policy and the Federalist Society and and so many of the institutions that really are the stalwarts of conservative politics in the United States. And what I try to lay out in the book is is the lines that kind of uh, lead from the 1960s through the, the the end of the millennium and into the new uh, the new millennium, culminating in what we. We now know is January 6th.
1: Point, Bradley, what you say in the book. I actually want to read a bit of this because I think it's really interesting because as someone who is a, a glass half full type of individual, I'm, I always am I'm just, I was raised to give people the benefit of the doubt. So I don't necessarily think or question people's, motives. But you said something that was interesting in the book, and I made a note, and I want to actually read a bit of it here. Uh, the the chapter is The Pure American Body. It's on page, for those mm-hmm. who have the hardcover edition, it's on pages 115 and 116. I want to just read a bit of this, Bradley, and we talk about it, because it kind of goes to the point that you're making there. You say this, when confronted about the exclusionary worldview, white Christian nationalists generate outrage by wondering, why the old-fashioned Christian family is under attack, In the contemporary United States, they transpose the charge of racism or misogyny into a frame of victimization whereby their faith, family, and freedom are infringed on by radical new ideas and revolutionary politics. You go on then to talk about Jimmy Carter not being seen as the right type of Christian, but then you say this. In this chapter, we have added another piece to this puzzle, the drive for family values. Is a drive to purify the nation, the purity culture to which I committed myself in the 90s, promising to remain abstinent until marriage, is an outgrowth of the family values discourse, and the family values discourse is an outgrowth of white Christian nationalism. According to the history we have traced, the ideal family for the white Christian nationalist is not mixed with other races; It's composed of a man whose work and provides a woman. It provides a woman who knows her place in the home a subordinate to her husband. I want to talk about that because it it is interesting how looking at it from that lens, which I had never really thought about before, that because someone else was doing something – let's just take Jimmy Carter, as you talk about in that chapter – that was doing things to promote minorities, promote women – and looking for quote unquote equality, that that was seen as an attack. Talk to us about how how that very subtly did kind of bring people together, and what has now become what you talk about in the book, like Christian nationalism.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the, the things we hear uh, quite often these days is that uh, when you know when everyone uh, is treated equally, when everyone is given the rights and, and fair treatment under the law, uh, everybody wins you know that hey if we live in a society where we are all free all all experiencing liberty all experiencing independence and the right to pursue happiness then we all win well i believe that but many of the people in the in the in the book who i'm talking about who i just, who i i label white christian nationalists they don't because what they're thinking is is hey i've en- i've enjoyed i've had a certain life in this country and if you start extending rights and representation to other groups to women to uh to people of color to black americans to indigenous americans then i'm going to lose some of my place i'm going to lose what i want to be the kind of status quo here and so i don't see it as everybody winning i see it instead as a zero-sum game there's there's just a, a pie and we cut it up and i'm used to having Kind of most of it. And if you start giving it away to other folks, then there's only so much of the pie to go around. Um, I tend to look at it differently. You know, you talked about it being a glass half full. I, I look at it as if the heart gets bigger. You know, you have a child in your family and, and you're you're more tired than you've ever been. You're you're spending money on helping them grow up and, and eat and learn and you could say, Well, part of my pie just went to someone else, I'm losing and instead you think my heart got bigger. My life got bigger because uh, of this other person here who's with me and thriving. I like to think of it that way, but the people in the book that I'm discussing really don't. They think of it as it's a zero-sum game, and it's a scarce resource. So if Jimmy Carter, for example, or Barack Obama, for example, or anyone else wants to extend rights to, to other folks, then I'm losing. And I, you know what? I'm mad about it, and I'm going to try to get my country back any way I can, and, and that's part of the story here.
1: Yeah, and and I think too even using those words that on their own may sound harmless, right? Purity. Um, you know, taking back. You know, a lot of times, you know, you think of that and you think, Oh, well that, that sounds you know, if you think something bad has happened, okay, I I get it. But I, I mentioned to you before we went on here that it really when I finished reading Preparing for War, I thought about really it, it is a form of some weaponizing Christianity uh, as mm-hmm. a as a vehicle to do what they want to do uh, anyway or to get back the power that they want anyway. What was that like for you? Because, Bradley, one thing I have not mentioned uh, for those who haven't read the book is we get to see a lot of you in this book as well. And was that something that as you were writing this that you knew, as you were discussing this topic, that a, a part of you would be kind of interjected into?
0: I did. I always wanted to to uh, interject my story into this one, not not because I think I'm so important that everyone needs to know about it, but because um, I really live this. You know, I'm I'm a mixed race person, but I I converted at age 14 uh, to uh, to to Christianity, to evangelicalism. And the church where I converted was um, 90 percent white. And I say that because as a mixed race person, it really um, had a grand effect on me because, you know, at the time, my goal was simply to give uh, my life to God. I, I wanted to serve in ministry. I wanted to be at church every time they opened the doors, as they say. You know, by the time I was 20, I was a full-time minister, and I was married to my high school sweetheart, and I was finishing at a Christian college and getting ready to go to seminary. So, you know, I was somebody who lived this, and I, I wanted to uh, interject my story because I think it, it really illustrates uh, what it's like to, uh, to be part of these communities. One of the things I try to explain is that my, my religious faith was imbued with a sense of American nationalism. My religious faith was imbued with a sense of a certain culture and a certain way of doing things. My religious life, or my religious life was entangled with a political life that said, unless you vote for this re- Republican Party, then you're not really a Christian. Um, and so I wanted to kind of show that converting into uh, in essence, uh, the gospel was also converting into all of these other ideologies, all of these other aspects of a worldview that were really more American and, and more modern and more, uh, I would say, Republican than they were uh, from the book of Matthew or from the book of Acts. And so that's why I put my story in there, and that's why I think it, it it's important um, you know, to, to kind of see what it's like to live uh, all of this out. Um, you talked about taking things back and purity, and those those seemingly being good things. In some ways, I totally understand that, and, and I, I, I see that perspective. I think for me, one of the the main arguments is, is that in this case, the taking back, uh, taking back America, taking back the United States, is is really uh, done so because. Uh, A a certain group, uh, a certain group of white Christians is feeling as if uh, the extension of rights and liberty and representation to other groups is somehow not okay. And there are times when taking something back is good, I think. There's times when it really is a matter of resentment and revenge, and and then it's really not. And so I think in this case, it's more the latter than the former, and, and that's kind of the problem.
1: I think that's a really good point. I'm going to dive more into that, Bradley. I want to say for those who are just tuning in, is on the radio side or online. You're listening to Conversations Live. Bradley Onishi is our guest today. His new book is called Preparing for War, the Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. We're going to get into that subtitle, too. Bradley, I, I referenced the cover earlier, and it, it really is a beautiful, I mean, really thought-provoking cover. What was it like for you to see the cover for the first time?
0: Oh, I was I was excited. It, it uh, you know the, the number of books on this topic and a number of friends and colleagues who have just written amazing texts on uh, on similar themes, uh, similar subjects. And they all and uh, we we really wanted to go away from that. So the folks at Broadleaf did a great job. It you know it's a picture of a, a church kind of um, on top of or or, or in, in some ways uh, pushing down the capital and. Uh, it really goes back to that motif you spoke to earlier of, of weaponizing uh, Christianity. Um, I, I'm not, I, you know, I, I don't want anyone listening here to to think that I think that Christianity is bad. Pure, you know, full stop. You know, thanks thanks for uh, tuning in. By by no means, but I do think there are ways that it can be weaponized, just like anything. Yeah. And um, it, and if if you use your faith as a weapon to oppress others, then then that's not a good thing. And then all of a sudden. Uh, something that uh, was about love and uh, and peace and the kingdom of God is turning into uh, a tool to oppress, to marginalize, and in some ways uh, to justify violence. Uh, and that's what many people did on January 6th, two years ago. And so uh, the cover tries to really kind of represent uh, some of those ideas.
1: You, you mentioned uh, a lot uh, that – Have to deal with this topic uh, Have the flag And I'm glad you mentioned the flag Because that was another interesting thing From preparing for war Because for those who may uh, Say that they are so uh, patriotic um, Have so much uh, reverence For the country and for the flag I talked about weaponizing Christianity Weaponizing even the flag um, and, and, And making it something uh, else, Talk to us about that, and, and it kind of leads into what you write about when it comes to January 6, um, 2021, but what was that like for you kind of see even something like that, uh, how, how people's patriotism became something that um, was questioned, uh, and even just as we look at Christianity uh, when it comes to white Christian nationalism uh, is being kind of divided, how even that's something that happened when it came to uh, being
0: patriotic. You know, when I when I converted at age 14, I went to a church uh, and, and there are many, many churches like this across the country where in our uh, in our worship sanctuary, we had uh, the American flag and we had the Christian flag and they were next to each other. And and most of the time they were so close, they were touching. And, you know, it wasn't until later that I really started to reflect on that. And I started to ask myself, you know, what I've learned from the Bible is that the kingdom of God is universal, that it, it, it extends to everybody. And the the love of God uh, doesn't recognize borders because it doesn't matter who you are or where you live and what your passport says, you are a child of God. Uh, the kingdom of God is one that uh, is not limited to uh, the United States or Canada or or. Germany or Thailand or Brazil or you name it, right? Started to wonder why do we have the American flag here. And I didn't wonder that because I didn't like my country or I wasn't patriotic or I wasn't invested in being a good American. I, I wondered that because I was I was wondering about my Christianity and thinking it's not that I'm somehow not uh invested in being here as as an American and fighting for democracy and and uh and the constitution and everything else. It's more I don't I don't know why we would limit our our understanding of the kingdom of God to one country and yeah. um, and so when we had the Christian flag and the American flag touching um, it really caught my eye. There's another story from the book where uh, there was a gentleman who was who's at the church uh, from the day it opened and he was the kind of guy that's really the, the lifeblood of the place. He sets up the chairs in the morning before service and helps the Drive the bus for the the youth when they go you know to summer camp and this kind of stuff, and uh, we at one point, this was after I'd left the church, but at one point, a new music minister took the American flag out of the out of the sanctuary, and uh, for him, this was the last straw you know he'd had some disagreements with the minister and so on, but when the American flag was no longer present, he refused to go to church and he went somewhere else half a century of being a member there when it comes to weaponizing. Christianity. It's also possible for Christianity to be to become so infused with uh, American nationalism that it loses itself in that relationship, and it becomes, uh, in essence, uh, subordinate to. There's a sense in which the Christian flag was almost subordinate to the American flag, and and I guess to me that's part of the story of January 6th is telling the story of the kingdom of God through the story of the american flag um in many ways leads us to a place where both become somewhat distorted and problematic and once again i just want to say it very clearly not this is not be being against christianity or against the united states or or our flag by any means it's more me trying to to make a, a a kind of nuanced point that um if you can't go worship god without the american flag Um, That's kind of a weird situation, and it might be a decoder ring for understanding why so many people justified uh, their attack on the Capitol and other acts uh, in terms of the United States and flag by way of uh, their Christianity. And so that's, that's a big part of the book and something that's not easy to talk about but I do think is important.
1: It is important, Bradley, and there's another thing that you said, and I think this is one of the more sobering messages as you wrap up um, preparing for war, and that is though what happened on January 6, 2021 was horrible and something that a lot of us, myself included, never thought we would live to see, that you say in the book it was almost inevitable it was almost inevitable considering the things that we've talked about now. So going back to the subtitle of the book, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next, what is it, though, even with that being said, knowing how much worse it could have been, what is it that keeps you optimistic and with hope, as you talk about in the book?
0: What keeps me optimistic is that um, January 6th uh, was a terrible day, and yet... uh, a couple of weeks later, Joe Biden was, um, was uh, sworn in as president. And, you know, whether you're listening and you, you, you're a fan of Joe Biden or not, the reason I say that is, is hopeful is because uh, the, the, the processes of democracy kept working. Uh, on the very day of January 6th, Congress and the vice president were able to certify the election. Um, during the 2020 election, we had uh, people who were elected that represent the, the grand diversity of this country. Uh, uh... in boston there is an asian american woman who is mayor uh... there are uh, lgbt candidates uh... up and down uh... the union uh... and, and the united states who are uh... representing uh... Their, their uh... their uh... various districts and state legislatures and in congress uh... there are just ways that the country continues to march forward um, even though there have been attempts to stop it and so um, It is very much easy, and I'm, I'm, you know, you you mentioned being a glass-half-full person. My friends will tell you I'm I'm often a glass-half-empty person, and I need to uh, resist that temptation. There are so many reasons to think that uh, we continue to fight and move forward uh, toward greater uh, uh, landscapes of of freedom, independence, and the pursuit of happiness, Um, but they're not without challenges, and they're not without uh, potential setbacks, and so – um, this is a, a, an incredibly momentous time in our history as a country. There's one where there's a lot at stake, and it's one where I just like to remind people that we make the history. It, it, it's not determined. It's not fate. And so the ways that we determine to act and to contribute and to uh, to be part of things are going to determine our next chapters as as Americans. And so that's my outlook going into 2023.
1: There you go. It is a powerful book, Bradley, and a great conversation with you. Really appreciate it. Again, everyone, Bradley Onishi has been our guest. Preparing for War is the book, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. It's available through our friends at Amazon.com. And as you heard Bradley mention, it's published by Broadleaf Books. You all can get it through their website as well as through your favorite local bookstore as well. Bradley, appreciate you and the great work you're doing, not only with the book, but also congratulations on your podcast. How can our audience stay connected with you?
0: Yeah, I'm on Twitter uh, at Bradley Onishi, and uh, my website is bradonishi.com. And so, would love to hear from folks, and uh, if you if you read the book or have thoughts, would would love to hear them. And uh, thanks for having me. It's been it's been great to be here.
1: Hey, same here. Appreciate that, Bradley. And we thank your audience for tuning in to another great segment of Conversations Live. Until next time, I'm your host, Cyrus Web Thing as always. Enjoy your day. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your world. Thank you all for choosing Conversations Live. Then let's go make today amazing. Take care.